0: Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. <clears throat> And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the, the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider this passage in Acts The judgment, the immediate judgment that falls upon Ananias and Sapphira for their deceitful hypocrisy. As we consider the fear that comes upon the church as a result of your immediate judgment, Father, we pray that you'd help us to just understand this text, to understand better that you are a holy God, that you do not take sin lightly to understand as a church, to believe as a church that Satan is on the move, trying, devising, scheming, to mix sin into the church, to cause a lack of holiness, and thus a lack of peace and unity in your body. Father, cause us to understand that our own hearts so quickly consume, eat up the morsels of deceit that Satan whispers in our ears because our own hearts are so often turned in on themselves and away from you. And Father, help us to understand that in the midst of this very ominous scene, we see the picture of the triumph of the gospel continuing that your spirit is working powerfully to purify your church and spread the word about our risen lord Jesus pray this in Jesus name amen if you notice chapter 5 it it starts off what for most of us is kind of an ominous passage uh, a, a really sort of bewildering passage or maybe even one that's kind of stunning for us because Ananias and Sapphira do something that, that at first glance to most of us probably doesn't seem like that big of a deal and they're struck dead immediately and, and we start to wonder about this and, and loads of questions come up as we look at this passage together um, and, and I hope to answer some of them, though some of them I likely won't answer. But if you notice, the passage starts out with this word, but. And in some of your Bibles, it may start out with the word now. Um, In the Greek, that word can be translated and, but, or now. In the older ESV, or English Standard Version, which some of you may have, it's translated now. In the more updated version, it's translated but. Um, It it has some flexibility as a word. I, I prefer the translation but because it's a contrast word. Now could be a contrast word, but the word but is a definite contrast word. And when you see that contrast, that kind of word start off, you, you autom- automatically ask, what's it contrasting with? In other words, the word but is there. What's the contrast? And this is where um, chapter divisions don't always serve us well. You guys ever, if you, hopefully you're reading your Bibles. And as you're reading them, you'll sometimes find that Chapter divisions come in, in strange places, unhelpful places, right? And they distract you from the context, the flow of the story. Now they're generally done fairly well, but I want you to understand this. Chapter and verse markers are not original to the Bible. Okay, they were added approximately 1,000 years ago. I don't remember the exact date. I could be off several hundred years, but you understand my point. They're not original, they're later editions. So why this word, but, that is really trying to bring us back to what precedes it. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and notice that, they sold a piece of property, I want you to understand the contrast, and with his wife's knowledge, in other words, they conspire together, neither one of them is innocent here, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself, he held back for himself, some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now I want you to notice both of these things. He sold the land, he laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Not all of it, some of it. But these two phrases come up in the preceding chapter, so I want you to remember those. And then look at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? I, I want you to follow that because... Satan filled his heart. Now, hear these phrases. He sold some of his land. He laid some of the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Satan filled his heart. I'm saying all that. I want you to remember those phrases. Sold his land. Laid some of the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Satan filled his heart to lie. You guys follow me on that? Okay, now look at the contrast that word "but" is bringing out by looking back at Acts chapter four and verse thirty-one. And when they had prayed, the church had gathered to pray. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered, place in which they were gathered together, was shaken, and they were all filled with what? The Holy Spirit, as opposed to being filled by Satan. They're filled with, notice the contrast, filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. They're speaking the truth about God's word with clarity in the face of fear. Contrast that with Ananias and Sapphira who are filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to what? Lie to the Holy Spirit. Rather than preaching the truth, they're lying. You guys following the contrast? Okay, let's continue to follow it. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. In other words, there's a unity in the church fulfilling um, what is told to us about the New Covenant promise in Jeremiah 32. And no one said any of the th- that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it where? At the apostles' feet. So the wealthy Christians were selling their lands, not everything, but they were selling their stuff, they were bringing it in, they were laying it at the apostles' feet to be distributed to who? The poor Christians. This is the church loving one another. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking the truth about God's word. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, so they're doing what? Loving one another. Selling their lands, laying it at the apostles' feet to be distributed. You guys hear the contrast with Ananias and Sapphira? But, Ananias and Sapphira filled with Satan begin to lie rather than speak the truth of God's word. And when they sell their lands and lay to at the apostles' feet, they're doing so in a different way than what we see in this passage here. In fact, let's look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were given their, giving their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Again, this proclamation of the word. And notice this phrase, it's important, because they're filled with the Holy Spirit, what does it say? And they're preaching the word, great grace was upon them all. What was motivating this in the church? The grace of God. Grace of God was driving this, was empowering this. And you see almost this idyllic picture of the early church, don't you? It's nearly ideal they're praying in the face of persecution. They're preaching the word of God clearly in the face of fear. They are loving each other well. They have great unity. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Great graces upon them. There are no poor among them in fulfillment of Deuteronomy. Because the wealthy Christians are seeing the plight of the poor Christians and selling some of their stuff voluntarily, not by force of government. This isn't an early picture of communism. Voluntarily selling their stuff to help out the poor. And it's nearly ideal. Then we get this picture of Barnabas. Because we want to ask the question, why the switch with Ananias and Sapphira? So it's important to look at Barnabas. Look there, verse 36. Thus, Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Now, I want you to stop and consider that. There's a man named Joseph, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, we're told. The apostles changed his name to Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. When the leaders in your church change your name to son of encouragement, you're you're probably appreciative of that, right? Now, imagine being the people around Barnabas in the church. They see a man... Committed to mercy, caring for the needy. Look at what it says in verse thirty-seven. Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him, sold that, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Again, that language: sold the land, brought the proceeds, laid at the apostles' feet. Barnabas does this, and we we seem to be given the invoca- or, excuse me, indication that he's doing this because he's filled with the Holy Spirit and great graces upon him. He does this. He comes in lays the proceeds of the sale land at the apostles' feet to care for the poor, and he's also, we see later in Acts, committed to mission. He's the one who goes with Paul out in the mission, really, to the Gentiles, and we see this picture of Joseph, who's renamed Barnabas, and you know the rest of the church is aware of this. They're saying, look at this man Joseph, committed to mercy, cares for the poor, loves other people sacrificially, speaks the truth of God's word. The apostles recognize this about him so much, they call him Barnabas, son of encouragement. He's the guy who comes alongside Saul after Saul's converted and becomes, as we know, the apostle Paul. He's the one who comes along John Mark after Paul is really sick of Mark in Acts 15. He's this man who is kind of an enviable Christian in the Christian community, isn't he? In some sense, if, if your heart is turned in on itself, like uh, Martin Luther, the famous German reformer, once said that the human heart is curvatus and se, it's curved in on itself. If your heart is curved in on itself and you see Barnabas, this sacrificial, godly, loving, truth-speaking, encouraging man in the congregation, and you see him being lifted up with a new name, being called Son of Encouragement, and your heart is curved in on yourself, what are you thinking? You start to violate the Tenth Commandment, don't you? You start to covet, to envy. You start to wish that everybody saw you like they see Barnabas. And if you're a wealthy person in the church community, you think, I can make that happen. I can cause people to see me like they see Barnabas. I can cause them to see a holy person who sacrificially loves and gives. And now I want to add to that Not only your own wicked heart can cause you to envy this other Christian and want to be known like he's known, but Satan is real and alive and active. And Satan desires to disrupt what the Holy Spirit, what the risen Christ, is doing in his church. Satan attacks from the outside. Persecution. Persecution. Slander. You guys know it? Satan attacks from the inside. Sin. A lack of peace. A destruction of unity in the body. So here you have some wealthy Christians in the church seeing Barnabas lifted up and their own hearts curved in on themselves begin to envy him. They begin to envy him. And they think to themselves, we can be known like he is. We can sell our land. We can sell a part of our land. And we can be known like he is and not have to pay the same cost he paid. No one has to know that we didn't actually donate all the proceeds of our land. We can put on a show like we donated all the proceeds of our land. And no one would ever be the wiser. Look, we sold that big piece of land. Look, we brought a very generous donation from the sale of that piece of land and laid it at the apostles' feet. Look, we're just like Barnabas. And so Satan, being on the attack, wanting to cause disunity in the church, is whispering into the ears of Ananias and Sapphira. He's whispering in their ears, and he's making them into deceitful hypocrites. The word hypocrite, so you know from the Greek, originally comes from the idea of play acting. Um, when in the first century and before, both before the first century, um, you, you had an actor in a play, what they would do is they would put on a mask. And the mask, we, the great Greek word there would be hypocrisy, if you will, They're hypocrites. They're they're pretending to be something they're not. Now, that doesn't have a, a bad moral connotation to put on a mask in a play. You guys understand that? To pretend to be someone you're not, that's what theater is, right? But here, Ananias, Sapphira are putting on theater in front of the church, they're play acting. They're wanting to be like Barnabas, but they're not wanting to pay the cost he's paying. In other words, sin is entering this otherwise idyllic picture of the church, and it is disrupting the church. It's disrupting it, It's bringing about a lack of holiness, a lack of peace. We need to understand that Satan is committed. He's committed to attacking the church. We're in a real war with a real being named Satan, And he is committed to attacking the church from the outside in the form of persecution, from the inside in the form of our own sin, our own envy, which disrupts godliness and peace and unity. But in both cases, the attacks we face, whether they're from without of the church or from within the church, they're a result of Satan's lying tongue being believed by man's sinful heart. The people outside, Satan is whispering in their ears, you can't trust those Christians. They're crazy. They believe in a fairy. Look, they're discriminatory. They don't really love people. You need to silence them. Shut them down before they cause harm to the rest of us. From the inside, you're not thanked enough for the things you do. You know, you did all that service and, and nobody thanked you. Those people are ungrateful. You, you're not held up in esteem like that other person is. Don't you think you ought to be? You know, you really should open your mouth and share that confidence with somebody else that you were told. Tell them, you know, it's like delicious morsels coming from your tongue to their ear. Slander them. Bring them down a notch just so you know and everybody else knows that they're not really as good as you might think they are. In fact, they're no better than you. Maybe you're even above them some. It comes from outside. It comes from inside. Satan's lying tongue being believed by man's sinful hearts. And Satan really launches a number of deceitful devices, if you will, um, deceitful schemes to undermine God's people. He is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And really what we see in this passage today is Satan at work attacking the church from within. If you will, at the beginning of chapter four, we saw Satan attacking the church from without, the Jewish religious leaders. We'll see that again later in chapter five as Satan attacks the church from without. Here we see Satan attacking the church from within. And by the way, at the beginning of chapter six, we'll see Satan attack the church from within again. He's launching, if you will, a two-front offensive. He's attacking them from without and from within. The Puritan Thomas Brooks, um, whom you may not have heard of or ever read, and that's okay, the Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote a book called uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It's worth reading, it's not terribly long. Precious remedies Against Satan's Devices. And I I just want to steal the title of his book, essentially to say that's what I want to come at in this sermon this morning. I want to ask the question, if Satan's at war with the church, how do we fight him? And so here's what I want to do. I want to provide you first with four schemes of Satan, four devices that the devil uses, that Satan uses, four schemes or devices, same word. And then I, I want to provide you with three remedies. Seven points. Anyway, we'll go quick. <clears throat> four devices and, and three remedies. So let's, let's start with the four devices, or really a description, if you will, part one, of, of four devices that Satan uses. Here's the first device or the first scheme of Satan. The first scheme of Satan is the device or scheme of self-exaltation. For that device or scheme of self-exaltation. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Here's here's the self-exaltation. The scheme here is that Satan has convinced Ananias and Sapphira to pretend like they're giving everything so everyone will lift them up. So people will exalt them. So they'll be commended like Barnabas. Satan has convinced them that they need the kind of recognition in the church that Barnabas received. Look at Barnabas, he's a wealthy man, he gave some land, now they've changed his name. We're wealthy folks. We can give some land. Frankly, no one has to know that we kept some of the money from the sale of the land. We can get the same recognition Barnabas got without the same sacrifice Barnabas made. We can serve in the church in a manner that earns us the favorable glances of the other folks in the church without much inconvenience to ourselves. Satan has effectively lied to them. He's taught them the art of deceitful hypocrisy. He's taught them how to play act, service, and sacrifice for the sake of getting credit from other people. Their hearts aren't really desiring the good of their brothers. You understand? They're not selling this land and laying down the proceeds for the good of their neighbor. They're doing it for self-exaltation. You know what this is like. You at least know when you've done it, when you've served someone else for yourself. Oh, I'm loving them and serving them. And then as soon as they don't say thank you, you have a fit. You didn't receive the recognition you deserved. Who did you do it for? Do it for them? I'm not saying people shouldn't show gratitude. I'm not saying parents shouldn't tell, teach their children to show gratitude. Don't get me wrong. But it's one thing to teach my child to show gratitude, to correct them and say, you need to say thank you. It's another thing for me to get upset in my heart that they didn't say thank you. You understand the distinction? Because I think I deserve better from them, because I serve them for my own needs and not for theirs. They are desiring to be well thought of, and though Satan is tempting them and filling their hearts with deceit, it is their heart that is the ultimate problem. They're really eating Satan's delicious lies because the human heart is self-exalting. They want to be praised. Satan tempts you to, tempts you to sin, but listen, sin is a problem of your own heart. It, you can't just say, the devil made me do it as an excuse, We see blame shifting start in the garden, don't we? Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Adam is with her. Let me remind you. It's not like Eve goes off, gets tempted by Satan, and eats the fruit on her own. It says, she turned to her husband who was with her and gave him some fruit and he ate. It's very much like this scene with Ananias and Sapphira, isn't it? They're, They're, in a sense, planning, scheming together. And then Adam immediately launches into when God comes, well, it's that woman you gave me. We don't know if he's blaming the woman or God for giving her to him. Probably both. And then he comes to Eve, and Eve's like, the devil made me do it. We've all heard it, right? But it's your own heart. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. I want you to notice the emphasis here in verse 1 about his own heart. Excuse me, um, verse 2, look there. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he and his wife conspiring together. They're responsible. Look at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? You're lying to the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. He lied. He contrived the deed in his own heart. Verse 9 with Sapphira. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Satan can tempt you, but sin conceives in the heart of man. And, And And I want you to notice that sin conceives in your heart. Satan is trying to fill your mind with lies, but sin conceives in the heart. You know, by the way, when Satan is filling your heart with lies and self-seeking, self-exalting hypocrisy, you can know what's happening by the way you respond by the motivations for which you serve. You might not always immediately know your motivation and service, right? You might not always, you might think you're doing it for the right reason and then something happens and you come up to find out later that you actually were seeking yourself. You ever had that happen? I I know it because I'm serving someone, I think, man, I'm really laying down my life for this person because I love them. And then they do something to bring harm to me and my response is, look at all I did for them. How could they do that? Oh, no, maybe I should change the phrase to "Looked at all that I did for me. We all want people to think that we are better, holier, more prayerful than we really are. And we're often self-deceived as to our own motives. We want people to think we're more generous, more kind, more thoughtful than we really are. It's a constant battle that Satan wages against our souls. Satan's been a liar, tempting people to seek themselves since the garden, hasn't he? Since the fall of Adam and Eve. Satan loves to bait your heart with self-righteous, deceptive hypocrisy, and your heart loves to bite on that hook one of his best weapons, but it's not his only weapon. Let's look at the second device or scheme of Satan. And I want you to hear this because it's directly related to the first one. And it's really a point that's underneath the text. In other words, you're going to say, did you pull this out of your hat like some kind of magic trick? I I think while this is not going to be on the surface of the text, I think you're going to find that it is underneath the surface of the text. It is something that's driving. Ananias, Sapphira, and frankly, that drives all of us towards sin. We see it in Scripture. Here's the device of the scheme. The scheme or the device of undermining trust in God's loving kindness. You hear that? The scheme of undermining trust in God's loving kindness. In God's goodness. Why do Ananias and Sapphira hold back some of the money for themselves? That's one of the questions we want to ask. Why do they do it? I mean, look at Peter's question in verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, here's, a, by the way, the Apostle Peter's endorsement of private land ownership right there. Did it not remain your own? He doesn't have a problem with that. There was nothing wrong with the fact that while it remained unsold, it was your own, right? Okay? Then why is it, it goes on, he And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You sold the land. That was now your money, right? So why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You didn't have to donate that land. You didn't have to donate that money. You you could keep that land all you want. So why bother to sell it and bother to put up this show in front of us that you are laying it all down for our sake. Why why do that? Why not just give all the proceeds of that particular land, especially since there was no requirement to give any proceeds from the sale of that land? You hear that? There is no requirement here for them to sell this piece of land and give the proceeds. That's what Peter's saying. No requirement for you to do do that at all. So why not just, if you're going to give any, why not just give it all? Especially if you're going to pretend to give it all. Well, we know that they gave what they gave out of a fear of man. They wanted men to think well of them. That's why they gave what they gave. But they didn't give all the proceeds from the land sale. So the question is, why not? If you really wanted man to think well of you, why not just throw it all down then? Why keep some of it? What do they fear that may be more powerful than their fear of man? Did you hear that? What are they fearing that's more powerful than their fear of man, so thus they're not laying it all down but holding some of it back? The fear of man drives them to give something rather than giving nothing. They're not giving out of the fear of the Lord. They're giving out of the fear of man. It drives them to give something rather than nothing. They want the favorable looks of others in the church. They want to be known as those who sacrifice and serve, yet they hold back. They keep some of the money for themselves. They only pretend to be really sacrificial. So they seem to fear something else more than man, so what is it? Here's what I think it is. I think they fear that God is not good, that he's not really kind, that he doesn't really love them. Now, where do I get that from? I think they fear that what will happen if they don't care for themselves, or or that they fear what will happen if they don't care for themselves because they don't really trust that God's going to care for them. They fail, in other words, to trust that God is good. Where do I get that from? Look at First Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. Um, you're rich, so this is speaking to you. You're going to say, I'm not rich. In American standards, you're not rich. But I read a study the other day um, that, that was a pretty, seemed to be a pretty good study done saying that the average middle class American has the same wealth as someone living in antiquity thousand years who would have owned 500 slaves hear that average middle class American um, so from any standard across the world outside of the west you're wealthy in current day standards clearly from a biblical standard you are so this passage is talking to you so I want you to hear this verse 17 you don't even have to pray give us this day our daily bread do you because you don't even worry that your daily bread's going to be there. In fact, you know that you're so wealthy, I just want to make this point, you're so wealthy that you're at a restaurant being picky about what you're going to eat, concerned that if you don't order just the right thing, you're going to be disappointed with the meal when you have another meal coming three hours later. Think about it. Oh, gosh, I better order the right thing. I don't want to be disappointed with what I get. So I'm going to go with my old standby because I know it's good, and I won't get let down if I try this other thing. You're going to eat three hours later, four hours later. Now, if you lived in a country where you got a meal every three or four days, I get that kind of consternation over what you're going to order. But when you're going to eat three times a day, just chill. Eat Anyway, look at verse 17. My point is you're rich. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes On the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. But notice this, the rich are to be told, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And I think that's clearly where the hopes of Ananias and Sapphira are set because they want to hold back some of the money for themselves. They just can't let it go. They fear what the outcome will be if they let it all go because their hope is not set on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You hear that? If you're wealthy, you don't have to feel guilty, rich Americans. God richly provides you with everything to enjoy. Just just take that in. That means you don't have to trust in everything he's provided you. You don't have to trust in that stuff. Trust in the Lord who's good enough to provide it for you. He's not going to stop being good because you lose your job. He's not going to stop being good because the stock market crashes. He's not going to stop being good because oil prices plunge. You can trust him because he's good. He provides for you. Similar, is it not, to the temptation of Satan in the garden with Adam and Eve? Look how the Lord is holding things back from you. Isn't that what Satan whispers into their ear? You've got all, listen, God gave them everything save one tree. The whole planet is theirs, save one tree, the fruit of one tree. And Satan's like, look, God's keeping that from you. He's stingy. He's not really good. If he was really good, he'd let you try it. You know it's going to be good. Look how good that fruit looks. Just try it out. What's he doing? He's undermining the goodness of God, isn't he? He won't let you from that, eat from that tree. What's he keeping from you anyway? He doesn't want you to have all that you can. He's not really good. If he loved you, he would not hold back. Don't trust him. And here comes the temptation. You can be seen as sacrificial like Barnabas was. You can even do something that will actually help people, yet you can do so without really having to cast yourself upon the goodness of the Lord. Just hold something back for you because you can't trust that he is good And this desire for self-exaltation combined with a lack of trust in God's goodness leads to a failure to trust God's Word. And every moment, I want you to hear this, every moment you distrust God's Word, every moment you distrust God's Word is a moment that Satan's voice sounds more reasonable to you. Every moment you distrust God's goodness is a moment that Satan's voice sounds more reasonable to you. The third device of Satan, the device of distracting us from sin's offended party. There's no way I don't think I'm gonna get through all of these, so. The device of distracting from sin's offended party. It is typical for us to think about the horizontal consequences of sin, isn't it? In other words, I sinned against my wife. That made her angry. I now have consequences, an angry wife in the house. You understand? That all by itself is a consequence. You follow? Okay. So she sins against me. Now I'm upset. Now she has to deal with... We're concerned about the horizontal offense often, how I hurt this person or how this person hurt me. But we fail to remember that our sin is primarily not a horizontal offense. It is supremely a vertical offense, I've offended God. I've offended God. Ananias and Zephyrus sinned against the church, didn't they? They sinned against the church, but in doing so, they supremely sinned against the Lord of the church. I imagine they thought, well, we're still helping people, and what the church doesn't know won't hurt them. But they failed to understand two truths. One, sin always harms other people. I don't care how private your sin is, it always harms others. And two, more importantly, sin always offends your holy God. Always. Every time. Your sin is first and foremost a vertical offense. It's an offense against the holy God. Look at verse 3 of Acts 5. Verse 3. But Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to who? The apostles. Nope, it's not what he says, is it? To lie to the Holy Spirit. Now, did he lie to the apostles? Did he lie to the church? Absolutely. But what's the emphasis? He lied to the Holy Spirit. Look at the end of verse 4. You have not lied to men, but to God. Did he lie to men? Yes, he lied to the apostles. Yes, he lied to the church. But supremely, his lie is to God. Verse 9. But Peter said to her to Sapphira, "How is it that you've agreed together to test what the Spirit of the Lord?" King David, you guys are familiar with him. He's the great king of the Old Testament, in some ways, maybe the most well, save Adam, probably the most infinite sinner I mean, excuse me, infamous sinner of the Old Testament, isn't he? He's the king who sees Bathsheba on the rooftop bathing. Though he's married and so is she, decides he has to have her. I don't think he's wandering around on the rooftop and accidentally spies her out, by the way. I think he's probably being a perv. Honestly, the way the language is, it's like he's looking for what he can find. He finds it. He demands to have her she's brought to him, he essentially rapes her. And you could say, oh no, it doesn't say that in the text, but listen, when you're the king and you bring a woman to your chambers for the purpose of intercourse, do you think that woman really believes she has much of a choice in it? So he brings her there defiles her, commits adultery with her. She's married to Uriah, a great man by all accounts, a man who's faithful to King David, a man who's faithful to his wife, a man who will lay down his life for the king. David commits adultery with his wife. And then what does David do with Uriah? He doesn't want Uriah to find out So he puts him on the front lines to make sure that he gets killed. He essentially plots his murder. A man who, what you might call, had a kind of rooftop pornography problem, followed up by an adultery problem, potentially rape, followed up by what? The murder of another man, a friend's husband. This man, King David, sinned greatly, Against Israel, his kingdom, didn't he? Sin greatly against Uriah, sin greatly against Bathsheba, sin greatly against his own wife and family, sin greatly, but against all those people. And I imagine if we were with David, we would be hammering him for a sin against everybody around him. If we were him, we would be primarily focused on the harm, I would think, that we caused other people. Now, in our culture, we probably wouldn't be that focused on the harm we caused other people. We'd probably be focused on the harm they caused us that forced us to do this. If people just loved me rightly, I wouldn't have done any of this. You just love me. Anyway, so it's like this victim mentality we have. You're sinned against. You don't get to sin in response to being sinned against. And you don't get to blame your sin on the fact that someone sinned against you. Your sin conceives in your heart. It's your responsibility. And it's against a holy God, Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. In other words, the prophet Nathan, a friend of David, comes and confronts him about his sin. Now listen to the psalm that David writes. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. In other words, his rebellion against your law. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, now listen to what he says Lord. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, did David sin only against the Lord? Clearly not. What's he talking about here? He's talking about who his sin was supremely against. His sin is supremely against God. Our sin is supremely against God. And there are no little sins. None. There are sins, yes, weightier and lesser matters of the law, but no small sins. Every one is an offense to a holy God. Thus our biggest need is not to clean up the mess or the hurt that we caused. Though we should clean up the mess or the hurt we caused to the extent that we are able, that is not our biggest need. Our biggest need is to be forgiven for our sins that were committed against a holy God and to be restored to a right relationship with him. That's, that's our biggest need. And that leads to the fourth scheme of Satan, or device of Satan. And I'll probably conclude with this, and I won't give you any hope at all on this sermon. Sorry. You'll have to come back next week for hope. You can despair all week long. The device, the device of minimizing God's holy justice. Look at... Verse 5, Acts 5, and verse 5, Acts 5, 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Now look at verse, and, verse um, 9. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold the feet of those who have buried your husband at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Now, this may seem shocking to us. We don't know if this is some kind of miraculous killing. Sounds strange, doesn't it, to put those two words together? Or if the kind of fear of man and anxiety and realization what they did caused Massive heart attacks in two people, one right after the other. I mean, I guess that's possible. I kind of doubt it. We don't really know. Here's what we do know clearly. God judged them immediately. We know that. God judged them for their sin immediately, and it tends to shock us. You may even be scandalized by this. How could God just kill them for such a small thing as being, you know, a little deceptive and hypocritical. They still gave. They just didn't quite tell the truth. What's the big deal? I mean, doesn't it all seem like a bit much? They sell their land. They give some of it. They don't have to do either of those things. They tell a little lie, spread, you know, act a little hypocritically, and and what happens? God kills them in judgment, immediately. And we can go through Scripture, by the way, with much the same attitude. Adam and Eve eat a piece of fruit. The whole earth is corrupted and guilty as a result. Death, spiritually and physically, comes as a result. The sons of God sleep with the daughters of men, commit much sin. God floods the earth and kills everybody. It's not a lovely scene. It's a weird thing to put in the nursery of a child. God drowning the whole earth. Welcome to life, you know. So we might be a little struck by the fact that he strikes down Nadab and Abihu, strikes them dead for adding some element to the worship of God he didn't command. They just bring in a little fire he didn't command. He kills them. Or striking Uzzah dead when the Ark of the Covenant is falling and it's about to hit the dirt. Uzzah puts his hand on it to try to stop it and God strikes Uzzah dead. What was Uzzah's essential mistake? Uzzah failed to believe that he was actually more defiled and unclean than the dirt. Dirt has no moral sin. Uzzah certainly does. God strikes him dead. I mean, doesn't it, he, he destroys Achan and all his family for their sin. And we could see all this and think, what kind of God does that? I mean, isn't God a bit harsh? And the answer is, the holy creator of all things is the kind of God who does such a thing. The God of the Bible. And our attitude toward this kind of event reveals our fundamental commitment to minimizing the offense of our own sin. We are fundamentally committed to minimizing the offense of our own sin. That's why we read these accounts and we're just thrown by them. How could God respond that way? What kind of God of love? Not the God I know. He would never judge people like that. He loves people. He's just like me. In fact, He is because He's a figment of your imagination, He is not the God who created all things, whom Isaiah sees in a vision and declares, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. When Isaiah claim, says of that, as I saw Him, I came undone. I am an unclean man. I have unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I, I'm being disintegrated by even seeing a picture of His holiness. John who lays his head on the Lord's chest at the Last Supper sees him in his resurrected glory and revelation. And what does he do? Hey, bud, give me a fist bump. No. He sees the Lord and he falls on his face in fear because he's holy. He's holy. But we minimize him, we don't take our sins seriously. We should never take sin lightly. There are no little sins. All sin is offense and offense against the holy God. And let me end with some hope because I can't possibly end there. God takes your sin so seriously. I want you to hear this. That he crucifies his son on the cross for it. He doesn't just cast people into hell, though He will cast people into hell who never find forgiveness in the Son. But He is so offended by you. I want you to hear that. It's hard to hear. He's so offended by me that He had to crucify His Son and pour out His wrath upon the one who is holy, harmless, undefiled just to relate to me, just to relate to you. Apart from the cross of Christ, God is offended by you. So he crucifies his son so that he can reconcile with you. Jesus takes the offense of your sin upon himself. Now, that's a part of what you need to understand about the cross and about the Lord who does it. Here's the other side of that. God is so committed, relentlessly committed to love you, to show grace and mercy to you, that he would do that, crucify his Holy Son, to reconcile with people who rejected him and sinned against him. This is our God. He takes sin seriously. This is our Savior. He took our sin upon himself. He is the one whom we trust. When we look to him, Jesus, we're forgiven our sins. We're cleansed of all unrighteousness. We're adopted into the family. We're declared to be righteous. We did none of that. The only thing we brought to the table was our sin and ungodliness. God brought everything else that was good. Let's trust Him. Let me pray. Father, we ask that Your Son would be exalted in our hearts and minds, that we would Understand that you are a God who is holy, that we are a people who are not, that you take sin seriously, that your son was crucified to bear the wrath due to us for our sins, that you did that because you love us, because you are good, that you can be trusted, cause us to look evermore to him trust Him and and love Him and rest in Him, to walk with Him in holiness all the days of our lives. Father, protect us from our own tendency to begin to listen to the wisdom of the world, to the lying voice of Satan. Cause us to be ever committed to being in Your Word, in prayer, gathered with the saints to hear the Word, so that we continue to hear and trust your voice in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.